in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all your lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from the great state of Washington in Spokane, Brian Fry. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, guys. How are you today? I'm doing really well. I'm excited for today's movie, and I'm also excited for today's guest. First time on the show, first time guest, that's always great. Matt Manahan from the Virginia Beach area. How are you doing, sir? Doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Ah, uh, it's a pleasure. And so let's get the guests to know you, seeing as how it's your first time on the show here a little bit. What's the last movie you saw? I'll say this. The last theatrical movie experience I had was Frozen 2. Okay. Is it, how's that compared to the first one? I actually enjoyed it. Uh, they definitely went a little different direction. It's uh, not your typical Disney princess movie, per se. Um, but I enjoyed it. They definitely changed things up. More importantly, did it get a good review from the kids? The kids loved it. Uh, my, my two daughters enjoyed it, and my son was right there uh, going along with it as well. I mean, it was, it was enjoyable for the whole family. Perfect. What is your first movie theater memory, Matt? Ghostbusters 2. That had been 1989, so I was probably around five years old. I went and uh, I saw it with my dad. The most memorable thing from that film for me was my dad having to carry me out of the theater because uh, when Vigo shoots his laser eyes, uh, that did it. That, that scared me to death. Oh, so you didn't get through it then? We would go back in. It was a little touch and go for uh, the remainder of the film, but I loved it despite all that. Yeah, it's a, a lot for a four-year-old. I get that. So <laughs> It was a little intense. What about you, Fry? Have I asked you this one before? It's not really a very dramatic thing. It was actually more funny to me. So just it's, it's one of those movie stories that I bring up a lot, especially around my mom. We, uh, she took me to see uh, Austin Powers, and she ended up leaving John and I in the theater and walking out within the first like 20 minutes saying it was the most idiotic thing she had ever watched. Uh, she ended up going to see something else that was around the same time in the theater. Uh, probably five to ten years later, I get a phone call from her laughing hysterically. And she's like, have you seen this Austin Powers movie? And I was like, Mom, you walked out of that movie. And she's like, oh, I guess you need to have a couple drinks first. <laughs> How many wines does it take until the movie's good? <laughs> exactly. So, Matt, you're quite the artist yourself. Great art student growing up. So I want to know... What movie has the best artistic inspiration for you? It can be either animated, costume design, set design, anything. Uh, looking back at my entire film experiences, this film has a connection with the film we'll be talking about today, and that is both George Lucas and uh, Lawrence Kasdan. Uh, and that film would happen to be The Empire Strikes Back. So for me, that film checks all of the right boxes, not only does it serve as one of those rare examples of doing a sequel the right way, 
but it it's had a withstanding impact on pop culture and filmmaking as a whole. You know, I think the direction, the screenplay, the musical score, uh, the emotional weight, the colors that they use for the different set pieces, you know, our heroes are, are damaged and dirtied. It's nothing short of epic. And uh, I would even say that objectively, whether you enjoy uh, science fiction or, or science fantasy genre at all, I think Empire Strikes Back can be um, put up there as a film worth studying and a, a film that is excellent in, in all those facets. Brian is nodding his head. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Good. Good. <laughs> uh, what movie are you holding off uh, from showing your children, but you cannot wait to show them when they get bigger? So I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I also have a four-year-old, but I'd say there's two. One is uh, Dances with Wolves, and the other would be Heat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah th- those, are, those are both heavy. So that brings us to today's movie, Matt, which is? Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. So this movie comes out in 1981. It grosses $212.2 million. That's a ton of money, even uh, especially when you consider it was an 80s dollars. It was number one in the box office that year. It comes ahead of On Golden Pond. The IMDb gives it a rating of 8.4. The Rotten Tomatoes critics give it 95%, and the audience score is right there with them at 96%. The Academy Awards actually give this movie some love. You wouldn't think a movie like this would get some Academy Awards uh, appreciation, but it gets five Oscars for Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing, Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Visual Effects, and it even gets nominated for some ones that you really wouldn't expect, like Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, and Best Original Score, which I thought, how did this not get Best Original Score, but turns out Chariots of Fire Mm. uh, came away with the Oscar that year. And that makes all kinds of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Golden Globes nominee for Best Director, and the BAFTAs gave it six nominees as well, didn't come away with any wins, but it's very unusual for an adventure movie to come away with this kind of recognition, so... AFI also gives it some recognition. So the American Film Institute put it on their top 100 movies of all time in 1998 at number 60. They reevaluated that in 2007 and they knocked it down to 66, but that's still very impressive. And on their top 100 thrills list, they gave it the ranking of number 10. This movie is definitely appreciated by many. And I got to ask you guys, Matt, it sounds like you've seen this one before. What was your background with it? What was your experience as it? What was it like coming to it today? So, yes, I've seen this uh, film probably... <laughs> probably a hundred times, no joke. My first experience with it was in 1995. My friend and I, we watched it on his dad's laser disc. Really? Yes. Like the giant one that's like the size of like an LP, like vinyl? Yes. <laughs> that's the first, that's a first for the show. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah, that was my first exposure to, well, Laserdisc, as well as uh, Indiana Jones. I fell in love with it after that, and it's definitely been into, I'd say, my top 10 films of all time list, or films you just have to own. So it's holding up for you then? Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my, my seven-year-old son, just so you know, he... He sat through Raiders of the Lost Ark for his first time for the sake of this podcast. He loved it. You know, faces melting and all. He was there through it all. Uh, <laughs> no nightmares to speak of uh, afterwards. I mean, it, it was his first exposure to Indiana Jones, and, and he's looking forward to the next two. So Fantastic. And only the next two. The next two, yes. yes there's only three. That's right. <laughs> all right. Brian, what about you? What was your first time with this movie, and what was it like coming back to it today? So, to your first question, I have no idea. Like, I when you asked the question, I was thinking, when was the first time I saw this? Is it fair to say that some movies 
have just been a part of you and you don't really even know where the origin of it was. It's fair. I, I feel like that's like I was trying to think about it. I was like, it's Indiana Jones. It's just always been there. I have no idea the first time I saw this movie. I have no idea how many times I've seen this movie. All, all the Indiana Jones, Sands, Crystal Skull. I, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for this outside of it's just, you know, it's like Thanos, man. It's just inevitable. Like, this is just something that y- y- you see. And I don't know when I saw it, but it definitely happened. Did you see it all along the way, like Matt, or had you put it down for a while? And is this just returning to it for the first time in a while? I probably haven't watched Raiders in a while. I would say that uh, I'm a Raiders and Last Crusade fan over Doom and certainly Crystal Skull. I I don't know. It's just, it's very important to me in terms of the Indiana Jones piece to always have a a Nazi enemy. Like, it's just, it's, it's like the Russians and James Bond. It's just, it's better when that's the adversary. And that's the reason Doom falls down a little bit for me. But uh, I've probably watched Last Crusade more than any of them. I quote Last Crusade more than any of them. But uh, this is definitely a very close second. I like you guys. This has been a fixture for me. I never go too far away from it. And it's just been there for a long time for me. I distinctly remember getting it at first in second grade. So I'm probably seven years old. And I remember a couple of my other friends had uh, gotten it before me. I remember one of my friends went uh, as Indiana Jones at Halloween. And, you know, I was I was definitely getting intrigued into the, you know, because they were telling me stuff about him. I was like, that sounds pretty cool. So my parents uh, did the did did the thing of good parenting and they went to the rental store and, you know, with a VHS. So that's another outdated medium, not a laser disc, but uh, a VHS tape. And I got to enjoy Indiana Jones, and I absolutely was running around like with a piece of rope as if it were a whip, and a revolver uh, plate, toy gun revolver, and definitely wanted to be an archaeologist coming out of this one because I thought that was the job description, and it seemed awesome. I'm I'm with Bryant. I probably my choice, my ranking goes. My favorite is Last Crusade, then Raiders of the Lost Ark, then Temple of Doom, and then Crystal Skulls last. So and then. I'm assuming whatever they do in the next movie coming out in next year, I'm assuming it will be better than Crystal Skull. So I'm just going to, in advance, go ahead and put Crystal Skull at the bottom of that. I, I feel like we just need to take a minute to acknowledge how terrible that movie was. Like, I feel like as soon as we posted that this was going to be the next movie, people were arbitrarily thinking, okay, they need to dedicate at least five minutes to complete and total slander of Crystal Skull. Sorry, now Matt, you didn't give us your rankings. How do you? How would you rank your Indiana Jones movies? Raiders of Lost Ark's number one. The Last Crusade for me is number two, and and Doom would be uh, number three. Perfect. Well, that's gonna cap it off for the intro part of the show. From here on out, though, they're gonna be spoilers. So if you haven't seen Indiana Jones, do yourself a favor and go watch Raiders of the Last Ark. And then all the other movies, those are great too. There won't be any spoilers from any of the other movies other than Raiders of the Last Ark, so we will be back after these messages. Hi there, and good evening. It's me, your two-term 43rd President of the United States of America, George W. Bush. But you can call me W. Now that I'm not President anymore, and not responsible to bring liberty to the rest of the world, people like me more now than ever. I made a painting of my dog, and people liked it. Laura and I go to every Texas Rangers home game. Go Rangers. I'm watching the full catalog of SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> it's funny, because his pants are square. Laura and I also watch a lot of movies. After we watch a movie, we enjoy listening to our very favorite podcast, the Retro Movie Roundtable. America, join me in going to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, 
Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and give the Retro Movie Roundtable a five-star review and comment. Tell them George sent you. Like the show on Facebook. Email RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Hey, America, have I ever led you wrong? <laughs> I gotta get back to my cold beer and my fishing rod. Take it easy, America. And we're back. Now remember, from here on out, there will be spoilers. Matt, for those who haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark since 1981, want to refresh people's memory? Certainly. Taking place in 1936, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, though chronologically speaking, is actually the sequel to Temple of Doom, which takes place in 1935. Um, And just a side note, Temple of Doom is arguably the sequel to Gunga Den. So Raiders of the Lost Ark follows American excuse me, archaeologist Indiana Jones, who embarks on an adventure to recover the biblical Ark of the Covenant after deducing that the Nazis are seeking it out with the hopes of harnessing the power of God and making their armies invincible. Our story begins with our hero attempting to retrieve a golden idol from a booby-trapped temple in Peru. We are also introduced to Indiana's rival, a French archaeologist named René Belloc, who poses a constant threat to our hero's efforts throughout the story. Indy is surrounded and outnumbered and is forced to surrender the idol to Belloc. Upon hearing that the Nazis are searching out his old mentor, Abner Ravenwood, to assist with their search for the Ark, Indiana travels to Nepal, only to discover that Abner has died. Here, Indiana is joined by his former lover, Abner's daughter, Marion, who is in possession of a headpiece, part of an ancient Egyptian artifact known as the Staff of Ra, and a key to locating the Ark. After an intense gunfight with Nazi commander Arnold Tott and his group of armed ruffians, who arrive in search of this artifact shortly after Jones, Indy and Marion manage to escape with the headpiece. The duo then travel to Cairo, Egypt, whereby they meet up with Salah, Jones' good friend, faithful sidekick, and a skilled digger. Sala informs Indy that Belloc and the Nazis are also in Cairo digging for the Well of Souls, which is believed to be the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. However, the Nazis are digging in the wrong place. During this time, Marion is captured by Belloc. Meanwhile, Jones and Sala manage to infiltrate the Nazi dig site. Using the headpiece from Marion, they are able to successfully locate the Well of Souls, which happens to be snake-infested. The Nazis eventually discover our hero's digging operation and seize the Ark before imprisoning Jones and Marion inside the crypt. The two manage to escape to a nearby airstrip. Indy destroys the flying wing that was intended to transport the Ark to Berlin. The flustered Nazis are then forced to load the Ark onto a truck, which is then pursued by Jones on horseback. Indy then manages to hijack the truck after fending off several Nazis and drives the precious cargo to safety. Our heroes then make arrangements to transport the Ark to London aboard a tramp steamer. During its voyage, a Nazi U-boat intercepts the boat. Belloc and Tot once again seize the Ark and Marion. However, they are unable to locate Indiana Jones. Nonetheless, Indiana manages to stow away aboard the Nazi U-boat, undetected. The Ark, now in Nazi possession, is then taken to an unknown island location in the Aegean Sea, whereby Belloc plans to test the power of the Ark before presenting it to Hitler. While on the island, Jones reveals himself and threatens to destroy the Ark with a missile. Belloc calls Jones's bluff, and Jones surrenders. 
The Nazis then tie Jones and Marion to a post where they can observe as Belloc performs a ceremonial opening of the Ark. Once opened, Belloc discovers the Ark to be full of only sand. Jones then warns Marion to keep her eyes shut as spirits emerge from within the Ark, eventually revealing themselves to be the angel of death. At this time, flames form above the Ark and surges of energy blast through the Nazi soldiers, killing them all. Some heads explode, some heads shrivel, and faces melt. Afterwards, flames engulf and vaporize the remains of the fallen assembly, except for Indiana Jones and Marion. The Ark then seals itself shut, and our heroes open their eyes to discover the entire area wiped clean. Back in Washington, D.C., Jones is informed by U.S. intelligence agents that the Ark is someplace safe and that it will be studied and monitored by top men. By who? Top men. Oh. Top men. The last scene of the film shows the Ark being sealed in a wooden crate and stored in a giant government warehouse among countless other wooden crates. Well done, well done. What a great ride this one is. This one's fun with a capital F. One of the things that I wanted to say that I caught this time that I'd never caught before, somehow I never realized, I know Marianne had been with him as a love interest of his in the past, but I, uh, she, she mentioned that uh, she was a child and that the, they, in the script, they describes Marianne as being 25 years old. Lucas originally wanted her to be younger and Spielberg said like not to go any farther than that. Uh, he was saying like, you know, if it's... Uh, if it's too old, then it's not interesting anymore. And so uh, they, they their affair would have happened when she was a teenager, which I don't think they do that today. So that's one of those funny things. Uh, you know, she says, I've learned to hate you. I was a child. That that little piece, I never caught that before. It's interesting you mentioned that, actually. Some of the, I guess, behind the scenes or documentary type information out there. Indiana Jones was originally supposed to be a much darker character, one who struggled with being an alcoholic, supposed to be a professor that fraternizes with his students. In fact, the student, the, the young lady in the classroom, you know, that has her eyelids painted, says, I love you. She's supposed to be seen on the sofa at Indy's house. Yes, as well as there's a uh, cutout scene too when uh, Marcus comes up to talk to him, where there, where there's a a different young student swooning over him in the hallway too. So there's a lot of similarity. We'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but and that James Bond womanizing kind of sense. Uh, originally, Indiana Jones was going to have a, a sense of that as well, and this is a remnant of that that's still there. Brian, do you like the story from Raiders of the Lost Ark? Sure. I mean, what's not to like here? You've got precursor introductory piece where you're getting a completely different archaeological find in the idol to start your your movie off before it launches into your main quest. So much the same way as they set up uh, James Bond storylines where before the main song you have some little tidbit to kind of show another mission he's on before you get the main movie. I really like movies that kick off with a good um, like preface. And uh, I think that's one of the most fun things about uh, this movie is you get that you know Peruvian jungle scene, but then you also get your you know desert Egyptian escapades. So that's that part is 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 big for me. And then, like you said about wanting to be an archaeologist and everything, like this really made it look fun outside of snakes. I also hate snakes, and they would have lost me at snakes. Asps, very dangerous. 
Why don't you go first? Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think you, I think you put it well. I mean, it, it is structured very much in the vein of a James Bond movie, and I think I've said it a hundred times in this podcast. I'm a huge James Bond fan, so it's not a it's not a mystery that this one strikes me right where that does. I mean, short of having gadgets, it's a, it's a little historical time capsule because older Bonds are a time capsule. It's a travel log, so you're getting to travel to the jungles, to the mountains. Uh, to the desert, all in one movie, uh, submarine as well. And so it's just really great, great villain, uh, like the Nazis. It has a feeling of, if you could say a movie was a theme ride, or sorry, like a thrill ride from a, uh, an amusement park, I feel like this is that. And I think that that's a term that gets thrown around pretty frequently. But in reality, this does have the exhilaration of a, of a roller coaster. And uh, you know, it, its pace just keeps moving. It never lulls. I mean, so often, whether it be the romance story or whether it be the obvious uh, adversity that the hero will face, this movie never drags for me. Uh, I echo everything uh, you all say. And uh, yes, it is very James Bond-esque. And uh, I think it was George Lucas was vaca- vacating in Hawaii shortly after the success of Star Wars. And uh, I think he met up with Spielberg there, who was also on vacation at the time. But the two of them were chatting, and I, I think Spielberg was ready to do a, a James Bond film, if memory serves me correct. And that's where George Lucas came to him and was like, oh, I have a character that's better. Yeah, I think it was Spielberg. Spielberg was just confessing, I would love to do one. Like, I, I, they haven't come to me, and I would like to do one. And right. uh, that's, my, that's my dream. And, uh, you know, he never got to do a Bond, but in a way, you're right, Lucas was like, what if we did this instead? It's not too late. I, I would still go get Spielberg to do a Bond movie. I mean, uh, he's still, he's still yeah. a, I mean, a director of much integrity. So, uh, you know, Barbara Broccoli, give Steven a call. Please do. Now, Brian, why don't you give us a cast rundown here? Absolutely. So we have our hero and primary protagonist, Harrison Ford, as Indiana Jones. He's an adventurer, an archaeologist, a scholar, and apparently not a womanizer. Should have done that. You have Karen Allen, who to this day is one of the most beautiful people. I remember the first time I saw Animal House, and I was like, hmm, she's pretty. Yes. She plays Marion, a daughter of a former mentor that you actually do get to meet later on in Crystal Skull. Uh, definitely uh, something that should have been in this one. Paul Freeman is Belloc, a rival archaeologist. He's the uh, the bad guy. And one of the interesting things about this guy is I'm a competitive person. If I were Indiana Jones, every single time I would come face to face with this guy, I'd have to bring up the fact that he's so bad at his job that he has to like steal it from me with overwhelming backup. Like... How awful are you as an archaeologist that you legit have to wait me to, wait for me to do everything and then point guns or bow and arrows at me in order to actually succeed? So I would have been a massive smack talker on this guy. This guy. Really wish they had uh, incorporated some na 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 on it. Uh, we have Ronald Lacey as Tot. Uh, he's the uh, Nazi main Nazi bad guy, and he plays the part exceptionally well. We have John Rhys Davies, one of my favorite people in the world, as Sala. He is the uh, all-purpose, get-it-done, I-know-a-guy-who-can-handle-this. He's basically the Q. If we're going to go on the James Bond theme, he's basically the Q. He's like, oh, I've got somebody for that. Denholm Elliott as Brody. He is one of the most endearing characters of these movies, but he's the gentleman who buys artifacts from Indiana for the museum. Alfred Molina as 
Setepo. Uh, he's the uh, original partner in crime who uh, tries to initially rob Indy in the jungle sequence. We have Wolf Kaler as Dietrich. Uh, he is one of the creepiest people I've ever seen in my life. Uh, this is the number one German henchman and all-around creepy-looking guy. We have Anthony Higgins as Gobbler. This is uh, Dietrich's number two. I think this guy gets lost a little bit, but if you're thinking, like, oh, who's the number two not-creepy Nazi? That's who this guy is. Probably leave it at that. Absolutely. And so it took six months to catch the part of one unknown actor that they were looking for. They kept trying to find a new, new fresh face for this one. Steven Spielberg saw Empire Strikes Back and liked Harrison Ford. All of a sudden, it, it clicked. And so uh, they, they considered a lot of other name brand actors as well in the mix, uh, including a long list, including Sam Neill, Paul Lamette, Christopher Guest, Bruce uh, Boxlander, uh, Barry Bostick, Sam Elliott, Mark Harmon, Nick Mancuso. Peter Coyote, John Calvin, Michael Bean, Sam Shepard, David Hasselhoff, and Tom Selleck. All of them, I guess, were battered about at some point at some various level or not. But Tom Selleck was given more consideration, was actually the second choice. He couldn't end up doing it in the end due to Magnum P.I., but uh, they did prefer Harrison Ford over all these names. And thank goodness they did because he's so good. You kind of get a little taste of what Sam Neill would have been like in Jurassic Park. He's got the hat for it, that's for sure. <laughs> Matt, do you have uh, any difference between Han Solo and Indiana Jones as, as Harrison portrays these characters? Uh, Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford. There's a part of him that comes along in each character that he portrays. For me, I actually prefer Indiana Jones over Han Solo as a character. Because he's more likable? Harrison Ford as Han Solo is excellent and iconic. You know, he's, he's all around cool. And you get to see a, a neat character arc happen through uh, the original Star Wars trilogy with Han Solo as he moves from being a, a scoundrel to a selfless hero. But Indiana Jones is just that, uh, and it's kind of touched on a little bit, I think, by Brian's cast synopsis, as he's, he's uh, just a definition of good old masculinity. I think there's just something about that character of Indiana Jones, that every little boy that saw this movie, uh, like you said, wanted to carry a whip and pretend he had a six-shooter and go on these wild adventures, yet uh, also had a normal day job. And uh, the, the chicks dig him. Lucas was hesitant. He said, uh, he said he didn't really necessarily want Harrison to be Indiana Jones because... In some ways, uh, like Scorsese would always go back to De Niro he, and kind of got a reputation for that. He didn't necessarily want to have that. He said that both Han Solo and Indiana Jones are cynical characters, and it's hard for a writer of a particular kind of character, uh, especially when you've written several of them and have them be completely different because that's just what comes out of you. And when you put the same actor in the same characters, he says it's even harder and he didn't want to kind of get this rubber stamp feel. So he was actually reluctant to go to Harrison, but thank goodness Steven uh, Spielberg really wanted them in there. And there are a lot of similar qualities between the two. They're, they're both sarcastic. They both have a certain distaste for the rules and willing to go outside of the bounds and to get the job done whenever they put their heads to it. Both of them uh, make the ladies swoon and they're both tough. So there's, there's a lot of similarities between them. Brian, what about uh, Karen Allen? I think she does a fantastic job as this, just this reckless, kind of a bowling ball. Like, I'm not, I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. It's just, she's a, she's a shotgun. I'd say the word they use back then is she's a pistol. 
Like she is just this hard drinking F you kind of uh, this character. And I feel like it plays off really well with Indiana Jones because you could totally see how she fell for him initially. Oh, absolutely. And there were a lot of considerations for her character as well. Jane Seymour, Barbara Hershey, Lisa Elbacher, uh, Mary Steenburgen, Amy Irving, Dee Wallace, Valerie Bertinelli, Linda Pearl, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Deborah Winger were all considerations for the role of Marion. And uh, Sean Young was actually used in screen test with Tom Selleck. And we know how close Tom Selleck was. Uh, you know Sean Young from Blade Runner, of course. And so that's just an interesting thing. Karen Allen hadn't done anything like this, so she she made her way into this one. And it's funny, this isn't a natural fit for her because like, whenever you see her as a, as a person, she's a big sweetheart. So she's playing a completely different character her, for, for her on this one, a little more of a departure than, say, Harrison Ford, who's admittedly, he's a little bit of a grumpy kind of you know cynical dude. In this case, uh, this is more of a, a character that she's playing and she's so different from her character. Some other things that uh, were considerations, Danny DeVito, was considered to play Sala. He did, you know, he couldn't do it. He had conflicts with Taxi and dropped out of it. And I'm kind of glad because John Reese Davies was definitely the man for this one. Even though uh, he doesn't look anything like the way it was written, it's supposed to be a five foot two, skinny, scraggly looking Egyptian. John Reese Davies is a big presence. Uh, one additional alternate casting here is Paul Freeman was uh, another British actor. Uh, who was in this movie, and he didn't have as much of a career coming out of this as you would think, but uh, Jonathan Price was another guy who was considered for the role of Belloc. You know him from the Pirates of the Caribbean father who has the ridiculous wig or the bad guy from Tomorrow Never Dies, so another James Bond crossover. And this is Alfred Molina's first role, and he's Doc Ock from Spider-Man 2. So, Brian, you're a big Blade Runner fan, right? Absolutely. According to the documentary Danger Days, Making of Blade Runner from 2007, Harrison Ford's performance as Indiana Jones in this film was so good excerpts that came from pre-release of this movie made the makers of Blade Runner want Harrison Ford for this one to play Deckard. Uh, it was actually going to be Dustin Hoffman. Which, uh, how does that sit with you if it had been Dustin Hoffman instead? Thank God. <laughs> uh, no, no offense to Dustin Hoffman, but man, that like Harrison Ford, like this was... You know, we talked about Han Solo as a character. We've talked about uh, Indiana Jones as a character. I think you've got to put Decker in there as well, even though there's m much fewer films to uh, to sample from. But Blade Runner's, you know, all-time top five movies for me. Harrison Ford's character in it, you know, you can obviously draw parallels between both Han Solo and Indiana Jones to him, but it's also a more casual swagger that i feel he carries in blade runner you always get a little piece of harrison ford in every part he plays i completely agree with that but i do like the little things that he changes to make each character unique and uh yeah i just i don't see dustin hoffman doing it even 19 what is it 81 dustin hoffman i yeah i just i don't see it i read that one and i thought of you as being like uh man Thank goodness that didn't happen. So I was right about that one. Yeah. <laughs> Your reaction yeah. was about oh, what yeah. I expected it to be. <laughs> Matt, this is a George Lucas effort too. I mean, Spielberg's name is up front as the director, but uh, as a huge Star Wars fan, where do you see George Lucas in Indiana Jones here? I see George Lucas as the initial spark or the ideas man that got the character up and running. I think there were other creatives behind the development and getting Harrison Ford's portrayal of Indiana Jones as the way we know it and the character uh, defined 
the way we know it today. Um, and, I, and I see George Lucas the same way with uh, the classic Star Wars trilogy. He's kind of that spark that ignites the adventure to come. His his name, to me, uh, I think gets credited too much with Star Wars and even Indiana Jones. You know, there's there's other talented writers and, and people behind the camera making this character and, and making Star Wars what it is. That's a, that's a great point. There's a co-writer with him on all of this stuff as well. And, you know, other directors involved. He didn't direct all three of the Star Wars uh, trilogy movies, even in the original parts. So some people would debate and say that when you see the prequels that, you know, it's good for George Lucas to have somebody to kind of keep him in check and to push against them. And, you know, great art in terms of like music comes from like when different musicians kind of push each other in the wrong way and exactly the right way. And, you know, when Lucas has that, it clearly breeds success as well. Brian, what do you think about Lucas's creation? I've got kind of a complicated view of George Lucas. I think that the guy definitely has uh, a lot of vision. I don't necessarily think he crafts films the best. I think he is he's an idea guy. He's kind of one of those people that I feel needs to do more of, hey, Steven Spielberg, let's do this. I've got this idea. He's not necessarily the guy I want actually making the film. So this is a better duo in, in your case where you've got the Steven Spielberg, who is one of the best at what he does, and you've got the idea man, Lucas, you know, working with him then. Yeah, I mean, uh, Lucas is one of those guys, I just, I would pay as a a uh, film company, I would pay him just to sit around thinking stuff up. And that's kind of what he did on this one. I remember reading for The Last Crusade a podcast, which if you're enjoying this one, you should go back and check that one out. That was an early one we did. George Lucas said he was just in his office and the first idea that he came up on uh, while he was working on American Graffiti, because he has a tendency to like daydream and doodle and get off track, work on other things and just get distracted instead of pursuing what he was doing. And it just came out of that, that, you know, he came up with the character of Indiana Jones just mid-American graffiti, even though the two are nothing alike. Yeah, I definitely think George Lucas' strengths really come out when he functions as a consultant, not as the primary when it comes to filmmaking. And Lucas was paid handsomely for this. The studio financed the entire film's $18 million budget. In exchange, Lucas would own 45% of the film and collect almost half of the profits that the studio grossed. And as I mentioned in the beginning, that was the domestic numbers. This movie made bank so uh lucas was rolling in dough from this one so uh this was a gold mine for him i know sooner or later lucas will probably wind up with a like lifetime achievement oscar i think that he he was definitely due for between star wars and these in terms of of creationism of film i i think he was definitely due for one there was a painful interview where they had four directors sitting there it was steven spielberg james cameron i've seen that george lucas and gosh, do you remember who the other one was, Brian? I feel like it was Ridley Scott or something. I'm not sure who it was. It might be. And the interviewer totally stuck her foot in her mouth. I remember she goes, you've all won Oscars. And then like there was like a little bit of like a like, like, <laughs> and, like, <laughs> like Spielberg is like looking away. Like, and, and, like Lucas is like, I haven't actually. <laughs> and uh, she's like, oh, I'm sorry. But like, I mean, Star Wars is great. And so it was assumed that like even, <laughs> even this high level person who like, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if it's NBC, ABC, CBS, uh, and made the mistake of saying like, oh, well, you've all are Oscar winners. And uh, so it, you're right. This just kind of assumed that Lucas would have gotten one. Steven Spielberg, though, he's the guy who fuels this thing. And I was watching the DVD extras in this one. And it's just absolutely amazing how much vision he had for this. I never really saw this level of DVD extras. 
they just kept the film rolling it seems like the whole time when he's talking to his actors he's basically telling them with such description of what the character's intention is going to be how they should pick that up what their hand should be doing and he's so descriptive in what he had thought and he storyboarded this more than any other movie that he had done in his career that he has said and so it's just really interesting to see what a clear vision that he had and how he was really guiding his actors i was wondering if as an actor you would find that confining spielberg's vision was huge on this one now matt spielberg he's on the mount rushmore of directors he's done so many great ones raised of the lost ark though where are you on steven spielberg and his efforts as a director on this. I love Spielberg's work. I think he really shines here. You know, you're saying that as far as storyboarding and and getting the vision ironed out with this film goes, uh, it really paid dividends and it, it really comes to the foreground when you're watching this film and the pacing and, and everything just seems on point and it, it keeps the story moving. I enjoy Spielberg. I think I probably like some of his older work. There's some things that Spielberg does in some of his more contemporary films that I would say is just kind of schlock or campy. Um, as much as I enjoy Hook, for example, there's just some cheese ball aspects to that film that are, are cringy. Uh, I don't feel like that Spielberg is the same Spielberg that we have directing this film if that makes sense. He, he, his style, though still quality, uh, it definitely changed with age. I, I would say that George Lucas was the same way in, in being an ideas man. I think you saw a, a change uh, development as, as Lucas aged. You see that kind of echoes in the prequel trilogy of Star Wars. And more importantly, I, I think you see Spielberg and Lucas as different people when they came to do Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, I still don't. That's a whole study on its own. I don't want to go too far down that, but I, it is hard to understand how they missed in that way. It was just too far-fetched. There were too many, like, I, I know we're talking about you know, this is a movie franchise where they opened a sarcophagus and ghosts came out and melted people's faces off. So I don't want to sound too uh, hypocritical here, but when you climb in to a fake fridge in a fake house, you are involved in a nuclear blast and that fridge flies hundreds of yards, lands and you walk out unscathed. Like, I don't want to say that that's where you lost me, but that's where they lost me. I actually hung in there a little bit longer. It was the swashbuckling on top of a like tiny little three inch Jeep metal rails while they were moving at 70 miles per hour while swinging in the trees like monkeys, like on CGI swings and then snakes, of course, too, while swashbuckling the whole time. I was just like, this is an Indiana Jones. This is I don't know. I, you might even be able to get away with that in Jumanji, but it's not it's it's a whole other thing. And it was a big departure. So. Um, I don't want to go too far down the well on that one. Have you ever fired one gun whilst flying through the air? Have you ever fired two guns whilst flying, flying through the air? Going back to the Spielberg working with his actors, that was really interesting to see. As I mentioned, Karen Allen was so different, and she was just like nonchalantly kind of like you know standing there nodding and then making a like she did he spielberg did take suggestions so she would say like i feel like my character might do this and so he was pretty cool and it was it wasn't just a total dictatorship he he was listening to his actors on this one but what i was gonna say it was so interesting to see her just it was like a light switch she'd go from being like this sweet kind of smiley person to like 
boom, she was on. She was that spunky, intense person who was going to, you know, she was commanding this whole bar that she was in. And, you know, she was a lady of action. And so it was interesting to see, you know, these are actors. They are not necessarily the people that they were, but it was it was interesting. And it was also interesting to see Harrison Ford go from being like relaxed and like being on a long shoot and uh, some of these conditions were really hot. All of a sudden, next thing you know, he's the hero. He's dialed in. So it's it, it's really interesting to see how that change happened as well. On the topic of Spielberg, you know, the, the classic swordsman scene where Indy just blows him away with a shot from his revolver. You know, the, the cast and crew became sick with dysentery. I guess they went into town in between shoots and they drank the water, they, they ate the local cuisine. At the end of the day, they all came down with just terrible diarrhea. In Indy at that scene, there is lost footage out there of a more elaborate fight with that swordsman where Indy's using the whip and, and some fisticuff type action. But because Indy was so sick and you can see the sweat just soaking through his shirt at that point, in the film, and that's not acting, and that's not meant to be. He asked Spielberg, can we just shoot this guy and move on? That's, <laughs> I think that goes back to one of those things where you see Spielberg, though he has a, a very uh, a controlled element to the filmmaking process, he, he works with the actors, and uh, we, we still get an iconic uh, a scene, one of Harrison Ford's suggestion to make a last-minute change. That's, that's a very good example of that. And uh, I, I think that that's a moment that exchanges action for humor. And I want to say, Last Crusade had a, a little more humor in it, but there's humor in this one as well. And it's uh, going back to that James Bond thing. I mean, James Bond today doesn't have many humorous elements in it, but throughout most of its history, it did. And this movie balances humorous moments with the action moments so perfectly. And that's one of the things that just hits me in the right, in the right way. Brian, are there any like little humorous moments that just make you smile or giggle as you go through this one? I agree with you on that. I think that any movie that can balance uh, humor well, I'm not a, a fan of like the funny friend or the funny character, the comic relief specific person, but movies that can carry a cer certain amount of humor within the cast as a whole. That's one of the things I kind of like about the MCU. It's not just one character that brings the funny all of them are capable of bringing the funny so yeah i mean throughout all these movies and you're right old bond movies as well like there's a just the little wisecracks can really break up uh you know a, a movie into you know enjoyable pieces is Sala considered one of those mainly in there for humorous relief things that gets on your nerves or do you feel like that's a, a different thing no i mean because like indiana jones has some funny uh, lines in this too and uh, we'll get to uh, some other comic relief here in a little bit with some of uh, my uh, accolades. I, I get what they were going for, but I feel like enough of the other characters are funny on their own that it didn't make Sala feel like, you know, he was carrying the, the funny torch. I uh, got it. So it was like consistent and it belonged there. Is there an example of a movie that you can think of off the top of your head that just made you go like, that's that kind of character that made me think not, I don't want that. Almost every heavily romantic movie has the one comic relief guy, the funny best friend, the fat best friend, something like that. Mm -hmm. You can really pick any of them and they utilize that technique and it just, they're funny. It's, it's great that they're funny, but I don't like the use of that trait really anywhere. I'd rather them sew, sew it into the, to the script as a whole. What about you, Matt? Are there are, what moments of humor make you happiest? I tend to be a little bit cynical myself, uh, so I relate 
with any of Indy's sarcastic or cynical commentary throughout the, the film. I enjoy Sala. I think he's a, just a beloved character. I, I, I don't necessarily see him as uh, comic relief, per se. Um, I think he's just extremely personable, and I, I think the uh, audience is just supposed to find him endearing. As far as sticking with the Indiana Jones franchise, a character who I think was intended for comic relief, though for me, I found obnoxious, though I can accept this character through my nostalgic lenses and biases, is uh, Willie from Temple of Doom. No, that's that's fair. And that's mm. honestly one of the reasons why Temple of Doom isn't at the level of Last Crusade or Raiders of the Last Ark. Yeah. Like, the, the, his female companion is just a lot harder to like. I like Allison Doty in Last Crusade. I like... I like um, Karen Allen in this one. I just, Kate Capshaw, not her fault even necessarily. The character was written in such a way that, I don't know, it's pretty hard to like her. I'll try to count count how many times she screams. I will, uh, I'll go down parallel movies with this, with Star Wars. Star Wars had a couple shameless ones. I was never a 3PO fan. I was never a Jar Jar Binks fan. The loud, obnoxious, quote, comic relief character just never does it for me. Oh, he put C-3PO in the same category as Jar Jar Binks? Oh, yeah. Oh, Dude, man. Uh, C-3PO has always irritated the hell out of me. Um, I'll also say, if you want to go like a different style of movie, uh, Joe Pesci's character in all in the Lethal Weapon movies that he's in, I've always hated uh, Leo Getz. Well, they do too, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, there's little moments of humor. I love it when he knocks out that Nazi soldier and he tries to put his uniform on and it doesn't fit. How many movies do you see someone knock a stormtrooper out and take their uniform and then it magically it just fits them perfectly? Or, you know, you knock somebody out and you take their suit of armor and even though your character is a foot taller than them, like the wardrobe department puts another suit of armor on them and it's like all is cool. This was a really nice nod to that thing of like he couldn't even button the shirt because the dude he knocked out was smaller. <laughs> and they even called attention to it, made a whole gag out of it. Like a Nazi guy comes up to him and is like, hey, like, what's wrong with you? Your hair's not combed. Your, your shirt's not buttoned. And like Harrison's just trying to fake it for a while and then just punches him out. And it's a lot like what you were talking about with the, uh, you know, the sword fight of like, I don't want to fight you with the sword. I'm just going to pull a gun out and shoot you. Like, I'm just going to take care of it this way. Those small things, they're not jokes per se, but you can't help but like the humor in it or like when the airplane's spinning in circles and Marion can't get out and you know there's it's an action scene but it's also funny in a way you 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 may not laugh the first time but as you watch it over the years you can't help but just get a big smile on your face as you watch it yeah she's very much so the damsel in distress I don't know, man. She's punching people in the bar. Like, like there was a barrel that got shot through at one point. And she like takes a big gulp of whiskey and then like knocks a guy over the head with like a burning log. So, right. But it, exactly at what point? How many times in this movie is she being rescued? I would argue uh, all the times. No, in, fair, <laughs> in fairness, Indy ends up getting rescued by the ghosts and stuff at the end too. So I mean, he gets in over his head as well. I hear you, but but literally the entire movie is him rescuing her over. And over and over again. No, it's true. It's true. No, I, I, I'm not saying she can't swing. Like, she was definitely, like, a, a strong female character. I'm just saying that they were really hammering home the, you know, help me, Indiana Jones, you're my only hope. Well, I, I will say, I mean, it, it's not that Marion, I don't find her helpless or completely vulnerable. A lot of the situations she gets in are her own doing. 
And, and she tries to escape on a, a few of those occasions and only makes the situation a little more messy. Um, so she's not a passive female character by any means. Right. I loved actually one of the things she did was she caught on quickly of like when Belloc took a liking to her, she's like, oh, he's going to give me food. I'm going to eat this food now. And uh, she's like, I want you to put this dress on. And like a lot of like females who are being captured in movies would just like spit on them. as like, you repulse me. And then they throw them in the dungeon. But in this case, she's smart. Um, like if I were in her shoes, I would do the same thing of just like, okay, I'm going to use what, you know, I'm going to use my looks and try and maneuver this until she found a knife. And then she tried to work her own way out of the situation because Indy didn't help her out. And I, I liked that about the character. Marion's a better character. As I, as I was a kid, I didn't fully appreciate her. As I've gotten older, I like her more and more and more. Yeah. And it's one of the interesting things. We're talking about the action and the comedy balance on this Lucas also said there's a mystery component that's really important to him. Indiana Jones aren't action or thrill movies, which I think that's debatable. They certainly are. But uh, he says they're primarily mysteries with a supernatural uh, element involved. And so he says they're more like X-Files. He felt like this led to the X-Files in a lot of ways. I don't know if you agree with that, Brian. You're a big X-Files fan. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that that's a reasonable juxtaposition. And one more thing from Spielberg I want to add in there is uh, I've talked about this in other Spielberg movies before, but he uses the L system constantly in this one. It's when the camera zooms in and then zoom or zooms out and then pans to the side. So kind of the camera makes an L. And he also does it when this camera is stationary and the, ca- and the character will walk towards you and then to the side. And it adds a lot of visual interest in the movies. It's a staple of, of his movies. And uh, it's one of those things once you see it the first time, then go back, watch it a second time. It's just, you don't have to go far. It's And it does. It makes an interesting composition. And uh, I also love his camera angles that he picks as well, whether it be on the truck or whether they're on the excavation site and they're rolling along like a mine cart at waist height and stuff like that. Spielberg makes this movie so visually interesting. When he's running from the boulder, he shoots the same thing like five times so they can show it from five different camera angles. It's one of those things where a large part of the action that's being played up is through Spielberg's ability to capture action. Oh, totally. Totally. Uh, you know, and, and some of this, I, I don't know if we'll discuss further into this, uh, but, uh, you know, I think that uh, the opening scene, that entire sequence there in that temple in Peru, uh, once he takes that uh, golden idol and replaces it with the bag of sand, uh, like you said, I, I find that to be, for me, that's one of the most thrilling sequences in the entire film. And I enjoy the rest of the film, but to me, uh, that that stands out as classic Spielberg technique and, and visuals. Uh, you really feel the sense of urgency and peril that our hero is in. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I uh, also saw were some of the things that they cut. Man, everything they cut from this. I don't know if you guys happen to watch any of the DVD features or not, but all the stuff that got cut was awesome in this. And I know it's still an hour and 55 minutes, but I guess it just shows my love of the movie. But there's just so many good things, whether it be a little bit extra, like... Uh, a little more conversation between Brody and Indy. Uh, there's a really, really funny scene where Saul is like, you know, trying to like keep his cover up and like dealing with the Nazis and like he's serving them like lentils out of a pot and like he looks away and then ends up like slopping lentils on their uniform. They get mad at him and he turns away at the other guy and the other guy's going to punch him and he picks up a frying pan and puts it in front of his face and he hits it very Three Stooges or Marx Brothers like. And I just wanted to say how good the quality was of the stuff that they cut. There's like another scene of Alfred Molina falling in a hole and Indy saves him, which is reminiscent of when Indy's falling in a hole later that Alfred Molina doesn't try and save him. And so that establishes who the hero and who the backstabber is early. And 
like I said, most of the stuff that was cut was really good. I think Spielberg had a hard time editing this one down, but everything that's there needs to be there. And that's part of what I meant earlier when this movie doesn't drag at all, does it, Brian? Yeah, uh, I, I definitely could see. I, I, I didn't put this down as my change one thing because I've just needed some variety in my life. But all of these movies, even Doom, these could have been longer. I, I, I would I would sit down and watch a four-hour-long Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> like that's That's one of those sign-me-up kind of things. I think that film specifically, um, independent, I'm not sure what, what you would call like the Netflix original, the Hulu original HBO has been doing it for a while, but these mini series is that they do that are, you know, eight, nine episodes long. Like I would love to see something like that done with Indiana Jones as a character, like just a super long movie. What do you think about the locations? As we talked about this, this is, this is set in 1936 and uh, we cover Egypt, Nepal, and Peru, and then there's bits and pieces of Washington, D.C., supposedly in there. Locations are, are spot on. I always love the, the set pieces and the feel of any of the, the scenes or scenery in an Indiana Jones film. Cairo, Egypt, I, I found to be uh, extremely convincing, though for me, I mean, anyhow, I notice it every time. But uh, there, there's a few segments i think namely the one that stands out to me the most is uh when indy thinks that he lost marion in the explosion yeah he's sitting there drinking his drink behind him i think it's over his right shoulder you'll see some locals walking around in uh, a t-shirt and uh, blue jean bell bottoms (laughs) okay but you know they 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 tried to control the sets. They tried to make it as authentic as possible. Um, but so there are some charming quirks with some of the, the sets and, and some of the, the scene and locations like that where, you know, they just couldn't help it. But everything's convincing. I mean, I feel like I'm in the 1930s. And that's the thing. Like, they went to great lengths. The Egypt scenes are actually shot in Israel and Tunisia in a town called Kerouan. There they took they took they went off countless homes and t- removing TV antennas and and covering up like power wires and stuff like that to try and you know make things look more period appropriate. It took a lot of work to do that, so it's interesting that a couple of bell bottoms squeezed through there, but because they they had their work cut out for them both in Israel and Tunisia to do that. But they're stunning. I mean, the scenes are stunning. Everything that you see that's inside. Minus the school and the D.C. like government building that they're in, which both of those are actually out of the same building. That's Rickmanworth Masonic School in uh, Hattonfordshire, which is uh, in uh, England. That's the government building and that's the university that Indy teaches in on the inside. On the outside, they shoot a different building from a California university. But uh, all the inside shots beyond that, all the Egyptian scenes, all the temple scenes, all the other stuff, that's all set work. And that really surprised me. Even some of the, like where they open up the arc in the end, I thought for sure that had to be a canyon, but no, that's, that's a set. And even the grand scale of the well of souls where they're dropping the snakes in, all of that is just amazing, amazing, large scale set work that is just full scale. That's not a model. And they really built this stuff to a great level of detail. So uh, it's just really impressive that they did all that. And talking about little things in the background and the Well of Souls, if you look closely, there's some engravings on the wall that are C-3PO and R2-D2 hidden in the hieroglyphs back there. So fun fan uh, overlap for the Star Wars fans there. You know, Kenner carried that over in their playset 
for the Well of Souls. Did they really? Uh, in 1982, yeah, when the action figures came out, they kept that engraving in that playset with the Ark of the Covenant. The Peru scenes are not in Peru. They're actually in Kauai, Hawaii. The La Rochelle, France is where they chose to shoot the uh, submarine U-boats, and they went there because they had a submarine. So uh, that took them there. So nothing is where they said it would be. So uh, And then most of the movie was shot in London, So, uh, which was an interesting thing because they had a hard time coming up with... They wanted 7,000 snakes more than what they had, but uh, they couldn't get enough snakes purchased in London uh, or, or, or loaned to them uh, for the scene. So uh, it was interesting. Uh, they used real snakes for that as well. So uh, it was one of those things where there's not enough snakes in London to make this. So they ended up cutting up like rubber hoses and just littering the floor with that. So that kind of built out the mass of that a little bit. I was really shocked to see that that was really a Cobra that they really did in there. I assumed that that had to be a mechanical prop, but not the case. Fun side story here. I actually took an ATV tour down to the river where they filmed Indiana Jones swinging out and actually did the rope swing there perfect did you get on a moving airplane at that point no i actually didn't want to go in the water either it was not the uh i I literally swung out and swung back (laughs) (laughs) okay well part of it there was like a kayak tour going back by at the time and the water also looked like the kind of place where you'd get eaten by an alligator obviously not going to happen in hawaii but it just looked like one of those places there might be something in there (laughs) now matt did the canyon where india is holding the missile launcher uh, and telling them, you know, like, I'm going to blow up the Covenant if you don't uh, let Marianne go. Does that canyon look familiar to you? Oh, is that a little uh, Tatooine canyon? Martini! It is. That is the same exact canyon where R2-D2 was taken by the Jawas. They shot it at a different angle, but it was one of those things in the trailer when they were saying, like, we knew Tunisia well. We'd already been there for Star Wars. And I was like, Star Wars? Well, this is Tatooine as well. So, uh Tunisia is Egypt and Tatooine at the same time. And that's amazing that they use the same canon. And I've seen both of those movies so many times and I never even put that together. Wardrobe. We're back in the 30s here. Different time area. What do you like about the wardrobe here? I think it's fun. I'm not usually one of those people that is pro uh, more than two buttons undone on a a guy's shirt. But man, Indiana Jones really does rock that look. It is. uh, It's good. I, I... it's one of those things where, uh, like, Belloc was always a really sharp dresser, even though he was, like, in the, the dense heat. Uh, I think they nailed Nazi uniforms really well, but, you know, I'm not going to say that there aren't a lot of uh, movies that do that. So, no, I, I, th- I think it's fantastic wardrobe. I don't think there's anything particularly special about it. I You know, I think they, they nail it. You know, I'd never noticed this before. Somehow I thought Indy just wore the same hat around all the time. But obviously when he's like traveling and he's got the nicer gray suit on and stuff like that, I didn't realize that he has a different hat on. So he's got his traveling hat and his field hat. And it's one of those things where I wasn't, I never was really looking for wardrobe specific until I was doing, studying it for this podcast. And certain turns out he doesn't wear the same hat all the time. So how about that? Matt, any other wardrobe? I think Indy rocks the man purse just fine too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, that's a good point. I don't know if this had anything to do with me carrying a satchel around for years and years and years. I mean, high school, college, even now I take one to work. I, I'm wondering if that's a deep-seated Indiana Jones love in there for, uh, because of that. You did go for that. And I remember thinking that was massively uh, inefficient for carrying textbooks because all your weight of your textbooks is on one shoulder. But you you, you, you carried it through uh, at, at your spine's expense. <laughs> I didn't carry as many books as everybody else did. I was I was a more frequent locker stopper. 
Okay, yeah, I, I was sitting there going like, yeah, that doesn't work for me. Like, cause uh... <laughs> <laughs> the other wardrobe thing is sinister Gestapo agent Tot, which is I call him burned hand guy. <laughs> Mary, Mary calls him hanger Nazi, um, because he's, he's unusual <laughs> hanger. But um, apparently his name is Tot, and uh, Tot was based on uh, Heimlich Hilmer, uh, who is you know historically the the SS Nazi uh, general. His round glasses. They shaved his head on top, and I noticed it for the first time on this when he takes his hat off. He's actually got hair on top of his head, but uh, he shaved it off to get the look for the movie. And again, they were kind of going for that Himmler look. Kind of funny that you had an actor with hair on his head and they made him shave it off. <laughs> Did you uh, happen to pay attention to Indy's uh, firearm of choice during this film? No, what is it? No, it's a revolver. So this is the only Indiana Jones film where he carries two different handguns i noticed he had a i did notice he had a 1911 at one point but isn't his like primary isn't that just a pickup he has off of somebody i thought like the revolver was his like the one he always had so, like, yeah, the one he always his his uh smith and lesson i believe it's a 1917 revolver i'm, I'm sure somebody listening to your podcast it's a weapons I know, expert exactly with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah no actually it's this um the revolver is his classic weapon of choice in the bar scene or the tavern when he first meets up with marion and then engages in that gun battle with tot and his his uh you know armed uh, goons indy switches every time the camera looks at indy returning fire at them it goes revolver semi-automatic which is a browning high power it goes uh yeah revolver semi-automatic revolver semi-automatic revolver and then indy pulls the semi-automatic out because he runs out of bullets in the revolver and continues the gun battle with the semi-automatic but this is the only film where he's seen carrying to and they don't really explain where he keeps the semi-automatic tucked away on his person but he apparently does carry two handguns from time to time two gun guy it's way to go uh, yeah thanks thanks for the clarification on that because it was something i noticed i just assumed it was something he picked up off the ground off one of the unconscious guys yeah pay attention dead. to that bar scene next time it's okay. obviously an editing error some classic trivia i guess for you there you go this movie is really impressive on the special effects because back then they did uh, practical effects I, and now everything would be computerized but one of the things i love 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 about this movie is how real everything feels like i said those snakes were real the fire is real fire the rooms that they're in while sets they're constructed of real materials and the light's going to hit them in such a way that just i mean we hit, we hit an era in movies where it took 20 years for them to try and get computers back to the point where they're going to look convincingly real and here you're kind of at the height or entering the height of practical effects and it looks so good matt what are some of the special effects or set design things that you like the most i you know enjoying the arts enjoying special effects practical effects uh, things like that i pay attention to little things such as indy's handgun is one thing i did notice um and then confirmed it upon further research when they're in the well of souls amazing of a set that is and i'm not picking on this again these are things i look back and and you see it now and it's charming but you know in order to break out of there uh indy begins rocking one of the giant statues uh, clearly you can tell this thing is constructed of a lightweight material despite the added sound effects of it sounding like stone sliding back and forth as he then knocks a wall out with it and, and also well of souls when he and marion push through the rock or the wall to make their final escape before the airplane scene um if you watch the shadow of that boulder or that brick stone 
it bounces down the hill. <laughs> Clearly a, a phone. Wow. You really have, you yeah, these are deep dives. <laughs> I, I, these are things that I, I find funny, but endearing. And most people aren't going to notice. So you, are you a Star Wars fan who likes the potatoes in the asteroid belt from the original release? I enjoy, <laughs> yeah, I enjoy all that, all that stuff. But you know, as far as the, the angel of death at the end, these are things, you know, and the, the faces melting and exploding and, and all that. Those are things that look maybe a little dated, but are gruesome enough and fearsome enough that you accept it. Well, at the time they were praised. Like, again, this movie got, oh, yeah. this movie got sound and visual Oscars. They won for those things. So, yes. And honestly, so Mary and I had this debate. She doesn't like the face melting now. She says it doesn't look good. But I think the face melting looks awesome. And it's just. You know, they went to so much work on this one. They plugged up, uh, you know, Peter Freeman's nose with like straws and they made like a mold out of his face. It was very, 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 very convincing. And then, uh, you know, for the. I agree. And the, I agree. And, the, and uh, it just to, to do that so they could melt it down and like paint it several times. A similar effect that they went to great lengths to produce was, of course, and then I won't spoil this, but they're similar effect style in uh, The Last Crusade. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Brian, where are you on the face melting? I think at some point it went from being like, oh, to <laughs> Did it? Okay. I, I guess I'm going to be the only one who clings not, on to my childhood but, on this one. So. No, but not in a bad way. It's legit. Not in a bad way. Like, it's not like I'm not watching it and ridiculing it, but it becomes more funny than horrifying. Like, at some point it did fade over into the, and now their faces melt off. Well, the people were so upset with this at the time. This movie was headed for an R rating because of the face melting. So they obscure, they they cut down how much of it they showed, and they obscured it by putting more flames in front of it. So that was kind of their way of getting out of the R zone and back into the more friendly PG uh, thirteen realm. Yeah, I've got a snippet about that later. You're sorry, there was just PG and R back then. So the the PG thirteen hadn't come out yet. So that was part of the borderline on that so do you know where we got the pg-13 rating i've heard it's the temple of doom but it's just rated pg when i went back and checked on it is that true because i mean i've heard poltergeist i've heard temple of doom i've heard temple of doom okay Kalima. some interesting sound stories on this one uh come out of this one to make the sound of people punching each other they took a baseball bat and hit a pile of leather jackets to get those sounds so that's an unexpected thing uh, to get the snake sound, to get the slithering and stuff, they ended up putting a microphone down next to a guy running his fingers through a cheesecake. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, know. <laughs> I didn't know that one. That's pretty funny. <laughs> to get the boulder sound that was rolling towards Indiana Jones, they actually rolled boulders down the hill and tried to get recording, but they all sucked. So they ended up taking a recording of a car in neutral going down a gravel road. So the sound you hear of the boulder, which is a giant fiberglass boulder, by the way, uh, the sound of the fiberglass boulder is actually a, a Honda Civic in neutral. Huh. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, this this won the Oscar for Best Sound. And when you start to see, I mean, all movies do cool stuff like this, but they took it to another level. They had to do more with it. And uh, this movie's more documented because people love it so much. So it's really cool to see what all these sound guys do. I mean, if you're a sound guy, you're never turning it off. You're always listening for the next thing. I have tremendous, I watched a documentary on, on sound effects. And I have tremendous respect for guys who do this. This looks like an incredibly fun job. I, I put it in parallels to the people who figure out how to make food look good on like TV commercials and stuff, like that burger you see and all the different things they do to doctor it to make it look delicious. But the creativity is, is where I parallel it. The creativity that goes into both of those practices and figuring stuff like that out is 
outstanding and i think it would be an amazing job i agree with you it was, this was another thing for lighting on this one uh again when you use real sets you have to use lighting and you can't control everything with a computer so i really want to give a lot of credit to the the, the, cha the chamber or sorry the well of souls was uh the darkness in there was amazing when they opened the covenant up and the light is flashing on indiana indy's face and uh, uh marion's face that was just so good and then I, one of my favorite lighting tricks was the silhouette of Indy's uh, shadow that's used on the walls from time to time. And like one of my favorite one being when he enters the bar to meet Marion, his shadows on the wall. And then later on, they use the shadow of the villain, this hot or hot hand guy coming in to the bar. And so just the quality of lighting through this one is just astounding. There's so many scenes you could call out in this one. Would you say that that uh, silhouette piece is ve very uh, Vader-esque? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. It's amazing how much Star Wars and Bond overlap there is for this. And this, that's another reason why I just love this. Like, it's a combination of all the right things for me. So yeah, and my Venn diagram, this is just right in the middle of everything. <laughs> Matt, soundtrack. What about the soundtrack for you? Oh, John Williams, Say No More. Yep. It's, it's fantastic. It, uh, it, it checks all the right boxes. And, and maybe that's just some bias looking back at, at this film. Would you have given the Oscar to Chariots of Fire or this? They're both great. I, I, if I had to put myself in the context of the time, I, I get I get Chariots of Fire, and that's iconic, and and a different piece of work altogether. And and I yeah I, I agree. I mean, Indiana Jones. It, I don't know if I agree with Lucas saying it's you know an X Files mystery kind of thing. I mean, clearly these were based on the action adventure serials of uh, his childhood, which is why he and Spielberg made this. This is just a different kind of genre. Williams is great. I mean, it's the same thing with Star Wars. I mean, those beautiful soundtrack, but and iconic, but maybe un underappreciated at the time. I'm glad you brought that up, uh, by the way. I had that in my notes, but I, let, I, I lost track of that. But yeah, Steve Spielberg and Lucas were definitely making this off of their the love of the Saturday matinee or the old, uh, you know, to be continued cliffhangers. And so uh, you see the jungles, which are definitely a, a parallel to the Tarzan times. The, the truck chase is a parallel to the old Westerns and the Lone Ranger. You had like the U-boat and the, the, the pirate ship on there. Like that's those are old pirate movies. And so one of the reasons the critics at the time are accepting this, surprisingly so, is because it's striking all the people who were in that generation and the, all the right notes because it was taking them back to their childhood and elevating it and making it more exciting so brian what about you on the soundtrack uh, yeah i mean it, it is very much a john williams nuff said kind of thing as far as chariots of fire goes it would be one of those things where you go all right john williams chariots of fire who gets it and i'd be like kicking the ground like chariots of fire stupid <laughs> like <laughs> it, that's the right answer like that's that's exactly how I would feel about it. Be like, man, fine. Yeah. <laughs> I like how you put that. Uh, one interesting thing that I remember from doing this from the um, the Last Crusade episode that we did, um, and Indiana Jones theme was actually two separate songs, and John Williams put them both before Spielberg, and uh, so that dun da dun 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 da da was different than the bridge part of the song, and. Um, they were two separate songs, and Spielberg said, I like them both. Can we do them both at the same time? And Williams is like, I guess so. And so 
Williams kind of made transitions and stuff like that. And there's an interview where he's talking about Indiana Jones. He said, this is not a particularly complex score. It was actually really simple, but you said you wouldn't believe how long I sit there dealing with a six note transition and to try and make sure that it's very, very, very simple, but it takes, I, I get really invested in making sure that that's done right. And it's just really interesting to see John Williams stress that it, as an architect, I relate to that heavily. So sometimes one of the hardest things to do is to be deceptively simple, to make things look like they're not there, to hide stuff is really, really complicated, really, really expensive, and really, really hard sometimes. And so I really appreciated Williams talking about the craft of this score in that way. This is the part of the show where we call a look for this. Matt's been doing a great job of this along the way. Matt, do you have any other look for this moments? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think I probably can conjure up maybe two more. So when Indiana Jones successfully hijacks the truck carrying the ark and he comes driving back into the town and they uh you know the, the locals there help him hide that truck real quick and put up like a false storefront and whatnot the nazis in their car come rolling through there you know looking for indy and they kind of go around a roundabout there the passenger the front passenger I, and again i don't know if this goes back to everybody <laughs> having diarrhea or what, but uh, there's, there's a passenger, an actual person sitting in the car in one segment of the scene. Then when it cuts back, it's clearly a dummy and not even a good one. It, it's the, the jacket with the hat sitting where the head should be, clearly no head wearing this hat. And then it cuts back as the car drives out, it's the person again. Man, you're, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I also thought that the Nazi bodies at the end sequence, when they were all facing the same direction, falling over, were particularly fake looking. Okay. They they it's like they all fell the same way. You mean when the lights going through them, Ghostbuster style, like when the arcs like ripping through their chest? No, it's it's after they do this pan out where you see like all of the henchmen, like the the twenty or so guys they had with them. Yeah. And they're all facing the you know same direction. They don't have legs bent or anything like they fell over that way. It looks like someone just took a bunch of dummies and set them on the ground all facing one direction. Okay. Interesting. Just a weird thing that irritated me when I watched this. I, wa I wonder if that was a scale model just to get that oh, shot. Oh, yeah, yeah, could be. Speaking of truck scenes and stunts, one of those things Matt mentioned there was uh, Harrison Ford actually did get dragged behind a truck. The guy who did the front to back transition was a stuntman and the guy who like rode the column down into the wall that was a stuntman but Harrison Ford does a number of these stunts himself and uh dragging behind a car with a plastic sled uh formed piece under his torso and getting bruised up and banged up was part of the job so you'll see shots that are actually him in there doing the real thing himself so uh I'm glad you mentioned the truck thing I guess the dummy though wasn't as realistic as uh as the other thing though I uh I read somewhere that he tore a knee ligament uh when the airplane tire rolled over his leg and because he thought uh, Tunisian doctors were so spotty he uh, had them basically like wrap it up in ice and continue the shoot that's hardcore <laughs> yeah that's hardcore yeah <laughs> my one might look for this is going to be the body count on this one uh, let's let's uh, just t let's take I always love to do this uh, Matt guess what the body count on this is uh, is this just Indy's body count no nope. or is this just no nope. body total count body count uh, Indy's that, that that's the bonus round uh, so okay. total, total body count uh, did we rack up uh, at least 100? No, 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 no. Uh, okay. Brian, what about you? I'm thinking like 45. Okay, it's between. It's 64 total bodies. Now, wow. yeah. Okay. What is Andy's body count, Matt? Is he around 15? That's close. Brian? I want to say 22. 
It's 11. Oh, wow. I went way too high. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, one of those funny things. And uh, over 30 bull whips were used in this. Uh, they changed the length of them from uh, 6 to 16 feet in length. So depending on what their needs were. Huh. <laughs> I always was wondering, like, he, li- he left his whip behind at that log. Why does he still have a whip? He left his whip behind again. Like, they never show you how he gets his whip out of these situations. It's like Captain America's shield. It's like, man, this thing doesn't uh, obey the laws of physics at all. Yeah. Like Robin Hood never runs out of arrows. It's like that. At least with Robin Hood, you can assume people are shooting arrows back at him. So it's like, thanks for the loner. Fair. <laughs> yeah. I always, I do look at Hawkeye or Green Arrow's quivers. And I'm just like, there are like seven arrows in there. <laughs> um, I, I think Hawkeye runs out of arrows several times okay. in those movies. So okay. So I was really excited that no one Matt, said this the entire the time. And this MVP. is my other Star Wars uh, segue. My look for this is the swordsman that Indiana Jones shoots is in fact the Wampa in Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> no way. Wow. Yep. I was like, yes, deep cut. That's exact. Like I was just going through characters and everything, doing my thing. And when I saw that, I was like, ooh, this That's a good one. one. <laughs> now, Matt, this is now time for my favorite part of the show. Time to hand out some awards. The superlatives are here. Matt, do you want to start us off with your MVP? Certainly. So for me, uh, this goes to what I would I put him in the supporting cast category, and that is uh, John Rice Davies Sala. Wow, MVP Sala! Didn't see that coming, John Rice Davies. Wow. Okay, great. I like it. Yeah, I I really enjoyed that character. I felt he complimented Indy well, and and if you get into any of the behind the scenes or, or documentary on the film, you know, they were going to kill him off. But Spielberg liked the character too much. And they bring him back in Last Crusade as well. Yes. And um, in fact, it's it's right about the the time, I, I guess, with the, the Indy and Marion are trapped in the Well of Souls. They take Sala off. And there was a scene they were shooting where they were going to tie him to a post and, I, I guess, execute him. Uh, the Nazis were going to execute him by firing squad. And the scene kind of lagged on, I guess. And uh, this is one of the more useless trivia on the film. But John Rice Davies, who was also inflicted with the the diarrhea, uh, while he's tied to this post, they wanted him to kind of squat down a little bit. I got to poop. Now he he and he says it pretty much this way. I'm paraphrasing, but he goes, you know, I I filled my pants in front of a hundred (laughs) people, and I didn't care. All right. So, Brian, MVP. I'm not going to surprise anybody here. I'm, I'm not even going to try to. I'm going with everybody's favorite John Buck, President James Marshall, Dr. Richard Kimball himself, Harrison Ford. I believe that is the correct answer, yes. Good job on that one. I wanted to, I wanted to name off a couple other movies that I absolutely loved with him in it that we hadn't broached on yet. So uh, those are the three I went with. No, those are, those are, that, that's it. Harrison Ford is, and I want to give a big, big, big nod to Steven Spielberg on this one. He had the vision and the execution to really carry this through for three movies worth, and he just nailed everything. He brought it all together, picked the right places, got the right people involved. What a big effort this was, and he was at the helm the whole time. Truly a master at what he does. So uh, Brian's going to go Harrison Ford. I'll, I'll go Steven Spielberg just to round out the, uh, for diversity's sake, but uh, Harrison Ford's probably the right answer as well. So best supporting actor, Matt? Uh, I would have to say it goes to um, uh, Marion. Karen Allen? 
Yeah. 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 What about you, Brian? Uh, I also said Karen Allen. I one of those iconic movies for me has, and I mentioned it earlier, has always been Animal House. It's it's just one of those parallels. For, you know, this obviously being probably her other most famous piece of work. She was one of the gems from Crystal Skull. The fact that they brought her yes. back. Um, yes. That piece of that movie made me so happy. And the casting of, of their her father. Yeah, uh, Karen Allen. She's in Scrooge as well, which is another good good performance from hers. But I wish she had been in more movies. I feel like she's in really good movies, but I feel like she should have gotten more roles. So I'm with you. Karen Allen's my pick. Her brightness is perfect for the companion. Her smile lights up a room. and uh, But her toughness is awesome as well. And she, she's a can-do kind of person. I love it when it's not an option. She just says, you've got yourself a partner now. And so... Uh, Karen Allen is, to me, what elevates this uh, so high. And uh, the companion, this is the best companion. I, I like I like the plot twist. I won't go spoil that now for uh, a Last Crusade. But this is, this is, as far as companions go, this is, she's better than any Bond lady or, or sorry, Bond woman or any of the other things. She's, she's right up there for one of my favorite on-screen female companions. So Hidden Gem, Matt. I would have to give this to uh, the late Pat Roach. Okay. Stuntman, professional wrestler who plays the giant Sherpa, who is Toad's henchman in the bar fight, uh-huh. as well as the German mechanic who Indy fights at the, uh, the airstrip. He meets the propeller blade and turns into a blood splat. Yes, he does. He's also the chief guard in Temple of Doom. Whoa, I didn't know that part. Yeah. And the Gestapo in The Last Crusade. Nice. This guy's just a good all-around bad guy, so. He's he's the big bad guy, yeah. Great choice. Nice. Brian, who's your hidden gem? I love that I can, I can work this in. Uh, this guy now becomes a uh, two-timer uh, for the podcast, unless I'm forgetting more. George Harris, the captain of Jones's ship, the pirate ship, is Kingsley Shacklebolt in Harry Potter, and Otto, the arms dealer in Black Hawk Down. Yeah, that's interesting. That is the first two-time head and jimmer, so that's that's great. I'm going to go on a similar note, providing transport for Indy. Jock, the float plane pilot at the very beginning. <laughs> that's my pet snake. Yeah, I, I liked I liked the fact that he had a pet snake named Richie, and uh, you know what? This guy's not even an actor. He's a pilot. His name's Fred Sorensen, and he flew most of his career with Southwest Airlines. So they needed a pilot, and they got him. And I got to say, for somebody who's not an actor, he has a fair bit of personality. Yeah. And I would have thought we would have seen him in one of the subsequent movies. Uh, they, they name him. They give him screen time. He has a pet snake. I mean, I, I liked this guy, and I wanted to see him back again. So to make that much of an impression on me in a short period of time made me say, that's my hidden gem. Good job. Yeah, I like it. Uh, recast, Matt. So this is not a cop-out answer by any means, but this is one of those things, and again, maybe it's a nostalgia bias here, but this movie, as far as casting goes, was lightning in a bottle. I would not change a thing. I could not see this movie being with anybody else in any of these roles. And This is one of those days where I have to, and I don't want to, so... Uh, I'm in the same boat with you. It is perfect, and I didn't want to replace anybody, but I did it just to play the game. Is there anybody that you would recast if you had to? Go ahead and share yours out. Yeah, I'll jump in. So I was saying that you know I, I prefer a little bit more well-rounded uh, humor in all of your cast and, and banter. And one of the guys that I think does a great job of this sort of addition is uh, Ocean's Eleven's Carl Reiner. 
I think if he had played huh. Belloc and he and Jones had a little bit more witty uh, repartee back and forth, uh, that's who I would have recast. Huh. Okay. That's a tough one. And I'm I, I'm going to go with Ronald Lacey. He's the guy who plays Tot or Burned Hand Man. Oh, he's so creepy, though. He is. And I, I didn't want, I told you, I didn't want to do this. I, it's, it's, a, it's a hard game to play. And uh, I'm going to put Terrence Stamp in there. He's the guy who plays General Zod in Superman and Superman 2. He's also your Supreme Chancellor uh, Valorium in uh, Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. Uh, he's in a couple other things. He's Stick from Elektra, which was an unfortunate movie, and Siegfried from Get Smart. So he's just a good bad guy. And I thought that he would do this creepy German thing well. But again, I would rather have Ronald Lacey. So it's it's just I'm playing the game just to play the game. Matt, if you had to. All right. I'd say if I was going to replace anybody. It's okay. I won't <laughs> tell them. A, I won't tell I'm them. committing a mortal sin I know. here. I won't tell them. Yeah. Do you want to go deep dive like the guy who like read the medallion for Sala? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it's anything, I'm just gonna say I'd substitute a uh, a, uh, a Nazi villain okay. character. That's a good choice. Who's uh, what's his name that uh, his face melts? It's not uh, it's not Tot. The uh, what's the character's Dietrich? Yeah, let's uh, let's throw um, uh, Hannibal Lecter in there. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I tell you what, if we're talking Germans, uh, I'm gonna go with my all-time favorite German bad guy and say uh, Jurgen. Uh, was it Prochnow from Das Boot? He's in Beerfest. Okay, yeah, I, I would. I'll, I'll toss him in for for Tot. Best shot of the movie, Matt. <clears throat> I'm kind of torn between two. Of course, Indy's shadow in Marion's tavern is up there, but. Uh, I really, really liked Indy overseeing the dig- digging team there in Cairo with the sunset in the background. It's when he takes he he takes like the, the the headgear, the turban off, and he puts his hat on. And you see all the other guys around him with the pickaxes digging and the sun setting. I'd love to just have a giant poster of that. I think that's just a, a beautiful, iconic best shot. For the record, that's Mary's pick on this one as well. So she definitely, she did an art project on that. Really? I really knew I wasn't going to get away with that one as my best shot. I went with it anyway. It's also mine. It is It is far and away my favorite shot of this movie. I, I'm tempted to give this to the ending shot of the warehouse as it zooms out with you see all the relics in there at the end. Uh, it sticks out in my mind so much. But something I noticed this time that was even better was the conversation between Belloc and Indiana as they're in Egypt and kind of like a public area. They've captured Indy and they've brought him before Belloc and Belloc's like kind of telling what the Ark is and like how excited he is that he's close to it and that Indy's just so mad he can't even look at him. That disdain that you talked about, Fry, that he has. And the camera's, Indy's on the left and he's facing away from the camera and he just can't even look. So he's not looking at the camera, he's not looking at Belloc and that that lack of focus that he has is perfect for that and he's out of focus and behind him is Belloc's face and Belloc's very excited because Andy's where all of his finds come from and so he's he's very excited and the way that this scene is shot is so good and uh, Andy gets out of there later by Sala's kids coming in and hugging him and stuff like that and bring him out of there but good good single like the camera doesn't move it's a still frame shot and it captures the facial expressions so well so that's my best shot nice best scene Matt. For me, it's the opening. Indy, as soon as he retrieves that idol in the Peruvian temple, and uh, the temple just comes crashing down all the way through the boulder chase, jumping across the canyon, door sliding down, grabbing his bullwhip at the last minute. That whole setup and execution, the way that plays out to me, is my favorite segment of the movie. It's a great introduction to the character for sure, too. Yeah. 
Now, Brian, best scene. I really meant it when I said it becoming a little funnier and less serious when their faces melting with their faces melting off wasn't a knock. That's my favorite scene still. I actually wish after reading up on this, I wish they hadn't PG thirteenified or PGified that part. I I still think that is one of the most uh, like exciting scenes in a movie. No, oh, that's it, and it is. I mean, it stuck with me from a kid. I mean, uh, there's so many images that really stuck with me from when I saw this as like a seven-year-old, like uh, the pain of that hand that was like burned, and the the pit of the snakes, mm-hmm. and and certainly the melting faces really stuck with me. All of that did. Now, I, I, speaking of funny, uh, in a serious moment, when Bellic or sorry, when Tot gets his hand burned and then runs out in the snow to shove his hand in the snow, do you not feel like that's a little bit Home Alone? <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I'll also say, who holds on to it that long? I know, right? I was like, the whole time, I'm like, dude, I, if you pick something up that's hot, it touches the first part of your skin, and you go, oh, nope. But he, like, grabs it, realizes it, holds on to it a little bit longer, and then runs outside. So my best scene is going to be uh, the Well of Souls, the snake pit where Marion comes back into the scene, and they have to get out of the situation. Uh, it's just a visceral scene that is so great. The scale of that Egyptian uh, set that they built was amazing. And uh, I want to give a close nod to the truck chase because that is a really good chase scene as well. So that's a a second place worth mentioning. So uh, change one thing, Matt. This film is, uh, you know, lightning in a bottle all the way around. If I had to change one thing about this particular film, I would have made the Ark of the Covenant more of an actual character in the film than just a magical or mystical MacGuffin that everybody is after. I think it's a little bit of a missed opportunity. Uh, Historically, biblically, the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence, the holiness of God on earth. There were some very particular rules as far as handling it uh, with the Israelites while they were in possession of it. Also, any time the Ark was taken from the Israelites, such as when the Philistines acquired it, they suffered uh, incredibly from tumors or infestations or plagues. People died. Uh, I would have liked to have seen the Nazis suffer uh, in a similar way when in possession of the Ark, since they are the baddies. Well, they were kind of hit with like lightning through the chest. <laughs> that was after they opened it, though. And, and you see kind of... You see kind of a glimpse of this when the Ark burns the Nazi symbol off the wooden crate when it's being shipped in the boat. But I I would have liked to have seen it play out more of its own character in the film. In order to do that, you'd probably have to have uh, Harrison Ford or Indiana Jones give a little bit of an explanation as some uh, little bit of exposition when he's talking to the two guys from Washington. A little bit just to explain that that happened possibly and he kind of does he uh there is a little bit of exposition there when they meet him at his university to discuss it but i I think you could have visually have portrayed that maybe like make him sweat get headaches and nauseous and stuff like that uh yeah or even just they're handling it when they're going to test its power towards the end that is not the correct way to walk with the ark um, it, it should have been further out in front. It just things that would maybe harken back to uh, some of the, the biblical rules of engagement with the ark itself. Yeah. I think they probably could have executed that with even a one line, say something like between the Nazis and, uh, 
and the archaeologist, uh, Belloc, just say something like, half of our men are already hospitalized for unknown, you know, just have them say, like, the reason we don't have more men with us is because half of them are stricken with something already. Exactly. Yep, that's a great, that's a really good, thoughtful uh, change one thing. So, Brian, what about you? My change one thing, and this is uh, coming from the piece that I really liked from Crystal Skull, I wish there was uh, some, some backstory flashback or something with uh, Jones and Marion and if that is where they actually introduced her dad or yeah, her dad and his mentor I wish they had done a little something else with that whether it's while Indy was explaining how he knows them uh, the Ravenwoods or whatever I feel like that would have been a really good spot for it okay my change one thing is going to be when they are in the map room and Tannis and Indy has a staff and they're really excited because Belloc's stick was the wrong length and they dug in the wrong place I think that it's important to also mention what day of the year they have to be there. I would, instead of the staff being the wrong link for Belloc, I would like him to be there on the wrong day. And so they're digging in the wrong place because whenever, in prehistoric people did have the ability to do this. So there's ruins and stuff that are specially designed so that on the summer solstice is the only day that a room gets light. And I think that they should have mentioned, we got to get in there because today's the summer solstice and it's going to be there at this time at high noon. You know, what day of the year it is would greatly alter where that light hits the map and the map room even if you had the right staff even if the staff is the right length so small little geometry thing small little astronomy thing but clean that up a little bit that would have been my that's my only change one thing and that's a really tiny tiny little thing so it's probably showing you how much i love this movie yeah but then they wouldn't both be there at the same time for him to intercept indy well they were digging in the wrong place right i'm saying like they wouldn't if if they had been there on the wrong day or the wrong month or something then they wouldn't be there to intercept Indy actually getting the Ark. But I'm saying that you'd be off by that fractional amount too. Like they were digging like, you know, yards away, like, you know, like street blocks away, not, you know, miles away. So I don't know. Uh, just, a, just, just a thought. Best quote of the movie, Matt. It's not the years. It's the miles. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Brian, best quote. Yeah, that's mine too. <laughs> that was a really good line. <laughs> Mine's going to come when they're uh, about to go into the uh, Well of Souls, my favorite scene. And then he, uh, you know, like he sets this up by saying, why is the floor moving? They drop a torch in and uh, they see that there's hundreds of snakes all over the floor, thousands of snakes all over the floor. And then Indy just goes, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? And then Sal looks at him and goes, asps, very dangerous. You go first. <laughs> so it's time to close out the movie. Uh, Matt, is there anything you want to plug? Certainly. I'll do a little plug action. Um, yeah, if you're into uh, vintage English bicycles, um, follow me. Check me out on Instagram at uh, the All Steel Bicycle. Perfect. And now's the time to give us, on a five-star scale, what would you rate this movie, Matt? I give it four out of five. Whoa, really? That surprised me. I, I do. I do. Because I think there's a lot of uh, bias that comes into reviewing a film like this. Uh, like Brian said, it's something that's just always been a part of you. It's always been there. You may not always remember when you first saw it, but you know you saw it. You know you've seen it a hundred times. Um, but when you actually go back and you pick it apart, it, it's not a perfect film, if any film really is. Um, by no means is this a Citizen Kane. It is a action adventure. It knows what it is, and it owns it, and it's fun. It's meant to be fun. It's not meant to be criticized and critiqued. 
Um, the focus isn't really even the characters or the story. It's the spectacle and the action and the stunts. And it's hard for me to say okay. four out of five. Matt, Matt's a tough customer on this one. Brian, what do you say? Uh, no, I'm going to give it a four out of five as well. Everything he said is completely valid. Uh, I don't, I'm trying to better myself on ranking these movies because I'm trying not to let like pure enjoyment of a film, you know, sway me to that five exaggeration. I'm trying to be a little bit more honest with my, uh, my rating scales, but, uh, I, yeah, I think this is definitely a four. I don't think that, uh, many people would begrudge that this was a really good movie. So yeah, solid four. By the way, though, like you guys are like holding off, but, but like the critics did, like Ebert gave this five stars. Leonard Moulton gave it four out of four stars. Leonard Moulton's even stingier than Ebert. Like he doesn't give, like there's years that go by without him giving a four star movie. And like he was saying, like this is everything that the Saturday matinee wanted to be elevated to a higher level. There are problems, yes, but why carp is what Leonard Moulton said on this one. And, uh, you know, like I said, AFI has us at, you know, six, number 60 on the top 100, not just thrill rides like just movies period and 66 when they revisited it so in theory this is a 100 best movie ever made of any genre so i'm gonna give this a five i mean i love it It just it it it, i have the nostalgia for it as a kid but it's one of those things where it's beautifully shot and spielberg's a master at what he's doing here it's perfectly cast and we had a hard time recasting it we had a hard time changing one thing on this so i think that's a strong indication that you have a perfect movie and i'm gonna give i'm gonna give it a five i'm I, I think it's one thing to tighten up and try and be uh, be more professional about it, not to hand the fives out all the time. But here on this podcast, we we go after the best movies. We we don't we don't go after one star movies typically. I think this is a five. I I, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'll take it warts and all. <laughs> Brian, you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it. So it's Oscar season, and I wanted to do an episode before we get into the other ones. Uh, let's look at a movie that was passed over that could have won an oscar so these are all movies that were nominated for oscars but got snubbed uh unlike indiana jones uh option number one doubt from 2008 a catholic school principal questions a priest's ambiguous relationship with a troubled young student option two dr strange glove or how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb from 1964 it's a kubrick masterpiece and an insane general triggers a path to nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and generals frantically try to stop Option three, The Asphalt Jungle from 1950. A major heist goes off as planned until bad luck and the double crossers cause everything to unravel. I think I'm going to go with Asphalt Jungle on this one. All right. We'll see why it was passed over because uh, it's it's an acclaimed movie in its own right. So Asphalt Jungle for next week. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. We hope you had fun. Thanks for having me. And uh, Brian, thank you as always, man. Always a pleasure. And thank you all the Lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, even YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. So give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Uh, email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com, all one word. And as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Ryan? How can it not know what it is?